Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are spiritually prepared, ready to study the Word. We uh, uh, use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. After a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are very thankful that we can come together each time we meet for class because we have the freedom to do so. We have the freedom to come and to study your word, the freedom to freely teach and proclaim your word free from any government interference, free from outside persecution or intimidation, and that we have the freedom to uh, proclaim the truth so that we can learn to live in light of your truth, because we know that only on the basis of the truth of your word do we have real freedom. And freedom comes first and foremost as a matter of the soul, as a matter of our relationship with you, because we know that we are born in uh, spiritually dead, we're born in sin and in bondage, and the only way to be free is to have that penalty paid for, and once that is paid for, then we have true, genuine freedom. And then we have to learn to live in light of that and to exploit it. Now, fathers, we begin a new section in Romans this evening, begin to focus on this topic of spirituality, living not as those who are in bondage to sin, but as those who have been set free, that you might use the Scripture to challenge us to press on to a higher level of our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight, our topic is going to be on what is spirituality. We're going to start this new section of Romans. Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8 shift us now completely from having talked about and focused on the topic of how is a person righteous before God to the topic of how does a righteous person live before God or how does a righteous person live on the basis of righteousness. And that is the focus. The whole theme that Paul has developed in this epistle of Romans is on righteousness related to the righteousness of God. The starting point is God's righteousness. So we have to ask the question as his creatures, how do we, first of all, become righteous? And second, how do we as righteous creatures, those who have been declared righteous, how do we experience righteousness in our own lives? And that is related to the whole topic of spirituality, spirituality or theologically speaking, the topic of sanctification. Now, what's fun about the topic of spirituality is that whenever you try to talk about this with anyone you know, you and I both know that there's a lot of confusion that uh, comes out because today the word spirituality has almost as many different meanings as individuals. And if we're going to engage any kind of conversation about the spiritual life, really we need to begin by just defining some terms and making sure that uh, the people we're talking with understand what spiritual life is is, what spirituality is, what spiritual means. And we find that there are uh, just a uh, almost an unending number of definitions uh, for spirituality. Back about 10 years ago, an article appeared on um, the new spirituality in the Boston Globe that emphasized a principle that's pretty obvious to everyone, and that is that America... Now, uh, and American people in America now embrace uh, many flexible notions of spirituality. I thought that was a good word to use. Flexible notions of spirituality. People sort of make up their own uh, spirituality. They they want to do what they want to do. It is reminiscent of the period in the Old Testament known as the time of the judges. The theme in the book of of Judges is that there was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, that phrase, there is no king in the land, 
was a t- phrase that had sort of a double meaning. First of all, there was no physical king, but they did have a king. And the king, under the Mosaic law, under the Torah revealed by God at Mount Sinai, the king was to be God himself. But the people had rejected God, and in place of God, they had substituted their own uh, their own ideas, their own authority, their own their own wishes. And this is the essence of any sort of relativism, which is what dominates in Western civilization today, both in Western Europe to a greater degree and in the United States. We have this idea that that we really do reject uh, any kind of external authority. No one can tell us what spirituality is. And I took some time just reading through various things on the Internet about spirituality and and different groups and trying to define it. I went through a search on Amazon. That's a fun thing to do. And just typed in spirituality, looking in books, and you come up with all kinds of different uh, books. But it's interesting to read the blurbs that they have describing what's in the book and then reading the responses from various readers to uh, this particular book. And everybody has a different idea. There's When you throw out the term spirituality, it's anybody's guess what anybody is talking about because no two people seem to have the same idea. It is judges, uh, the, book, the period of the judges right before us, just pure relativism. Nobody uh, wants to go to any sort of set definition. And even though you run into a few places where they'll try to Look at the word in terms of its definition in um, Merriam-Webster, Oxford, English Dictionary. Some try to break it down etymologically into its uh, Latin roots and its relation to, uh, to Greek or Christianity. Even those people are few and far between. And if you do go to uh, Oxford or to Merriam-Webster to get a definition, that's pretty nebulous, and it covers a wide variety of different ideas. And so uh, it's hard to start a conversation when the the, the very uh, basis of discourse is on a common understanding of the meaning of the words that you're using in a conversation. And you start talking with somebody about spirituality, and it it just goes in many different directions. You not only have your traditional uh, views of spirituality, which are always related to religion, such as Hindu, you have Hindu spirituality, Buddhist spirituality, Islamic spirituality, Christian spirituality, you have pagan spirituality, all these different forms. But in the wonderful world in which we live today, all of these different forms have cross-fertilized and cross-pollinated so that they've produced many, many different illegitimate children and people just pick and choose whatever they want to. We live in a time of just smorgasbord uh, spirituality. Uh, in, For example, in opinion polls that have been taken over the last decade or so, usually we find that somewhere between 80 to 90% of Americans claim to believe in God. Now, I want to put that term God in quotes because what do they mean by God? You have a lot of Americans are basically Hindu in their beliefs, and what they mean by God is not what an Orthodox Jew would say they believe in in terms of God. That's not the same as a Presbyterian would define God. That's not the same as a a Buddhist in terms of defining God, but they all believe in something like a higher, higher power. And also somewhat concerns me if you have 90% of Americans, as this one poll suggested, if 90% of Americans believe in God, does that mean that all of the scientists in America are in that 10% range and the other 90% don't believe in God? I mean, that's just, that, that's, uh, you know, when you think about the whole creation versus evolution type of uh, 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 scenario and debate, makes me wonder that that if 90% of Americans believe in God, that can't be the Judeo-Christian creator God. It's just an amorphous term for something. So we have to define that. But what's also interesting is that starting in the 
I think, I think really in the late 80s, and it doesn't really show up in a lot of these polls, and, and it begins to increase in the 90s, more and more uh, Americans believe in some sort of spiritual growth, the necessity of spiritual growth, the necessity of feeding their spiritual life. And then you begin to ask, well, what do you mean by spiritual life? And that, again, takes you uh, just about anywhere. Uh, 43% in one poll said that their interest in spirituality had increased over the previous year. I'm just pointing out that this is a popular topic and a popular idea. You can always, when you're standing there at the cash register at the grocery store, pick up a People magazine or an Us magazine or a National Enquirer or something like that, and you'll discover that various um, entertainment celebrities are always taking a little time off to focus on their spiritual life, and one really wonders what that means for them. In um, 2010, there was a Newsweek BeliefNet poll that said that, uh, uh, according to that poll, 24% of those polls said that they were not religious, but they were spiritual. So in terms of the popular spirituality, the popular understanding, for many people, spirituality is no longer related to a religious belief. And for almost 50%, though, spirituality was still somewhat related to a religious belief. Now, of course, that religious belief could be any of the uh, major religious systems, but it was still somewhat anchored to that. Uh, the impact of the uh, the New Age movement, which is just, in most cases, another form of, of uh, Hinduism or Eastern mysticism in the in the 80s and 90s, really led to this sort of subjective view of spirituality. You read some articles, and spirituality is more related to psychological well-being. You read other articles, it's related to some sort of uh, self-fulfillment, so it's very much oriented to uh, one uh, pursuing one's own goals and objectives and reaching them. In other contexts, it's related to uh, emotional uh, well-being. Uh, but it always amazes me how you can get to some of these things because who, who determines what emotional well-being is? You have certain groups of people who are very quiet, very cerebral. They are uh, what psychologists refer to as uh, uh, very obsessive people. They're career-oriented then you have other people who are very people-oriented. Usually the people-oriented types are telling the business and goal-oriented types that they need to get in touch with their emotional self. But what makes them right? I often wonder what makes their criteria the superior criteria. Why not the other way around? My point is, once you cut yourself loose from a, an absolute that can establish the meaning of terms, everybody's just sharing their ignorance, their own opinions, and nobody knows what's going on. And it, once again, puts you back into a total state of chaos and anarchy, which is what was experienced during the time of the judges. Nobody knows what they're talking about. Everybody has their own opinion, none of which is informed or, or is based upon anything of, uh, 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 that's solid. And everybody just wants to do basically what makes them happy at any particular moment. And as long as they have that sense of happiness and fulfillment, whatever it is at that time in their life, then they apparently seem to say that they are, uh, they are spiritual and they are pursuing spirituality. So in this context, spirituality has come to be defined as anything from making an emotional connection to, with other people to pursuing some sort of shamanic uh, journey to various uh, contemplation or meditation techniques to reaching some sort of Maslowian self-actualization. One blogger recently defined spirituality as that which deals with issues of inner beliefs and feelings and is closely associated with religion and philosophy, but not necessarily so. He also notes that people practice spirituality because they're looking for something, inner peace, enlightenment, success, new girlfriend, whatever. They're always looking for something. So this is all part of the modern context of, of uh, spirituality. 
But when we come to talking about the Bible, the Bible is very clear as to what spirituality is. But of course, like we find in other areas of life and other disciplines, whatever the Bible says is something that is somehow excluded from the uh, from discourse. We've rejected the Bible as having anything to say about spirituality. So having rejected that, we're going to just start off on our own uh, own course, trying to figure out what the word means and then pursuing it. Uh, for some people, they go into meditation, they go into uh, various rituals, but these things are also leaking and the leaks are growing into uh, Christianity. You have the new, the emergent church movement. This is the latest uh, ev- uh, devolution among uh, Christians that's been on the horizon for at least the last uh, 12 to 14 years, which is, uh, it's, it's not biblical Christianity at all. It's, it deteriorates into a lot of uh, psychological feel-good, uh, emphasis on entertainment, emphasis on feeling, emphasis on different char- uh, uh, characteristics of, um, <clears throat> of mysticism, and it brings with it its own vocabulary. And you run into and read some of these things. They'll talk about contemplative spirituality. They'll talk about being centered. That's another word that comes out of this kind of uh, New Age sort of uh, mystical uh, concept of spirituality. They put an emphasis on, on labyrinths, and you'll find this in some churches where they put in these labyrinths in their uh, entryways or in their fellowship hall, and this is something that you walk through, and somehow walking through this labyrinth is going to get you closer to God, whatever, whoever uh, he or she might be. And they, it's just more and more confusion and absolutely no, uh, no certainty. So we... It's important when we talk about anything to define terms and to define our basis for those terms, which takes us right to the issue of authority, and it takes us right to the issue of, of how we know anything. How do we know we're spiritual beings? In fact, if you believe in evolution and you try to implement anything on the basis of Darwinian evolution, then you really are totally illogical and irrational if you believe in any kind of spirituality because in some level, spirituality is emphasizing something related to the immaterial nature of man or related to, even if they're focusing on just emotional well-being, they would be talking about emotions that are uh, not... That are not part of a deterministic framework. If you believe in a material origin for man, which is necessary if you believe in evolution, then if with a material view of man, there's no room for the immaterial. In a materialistic view of man, there's no such thing as the soul. There's only the brain. And the brain's thoughts and ideas and concepts are all determined by various uh, chemical balances and imbalances, various electrical charges, and these kinds of things. And that's where uh, some aspects of modern psychology go. Everything is related to that which is purely material and, and, uh, and purely f- uh, physical. So spiritual, by its very nature, the word implies something which is not uh, not material, something that is related to something that goes beyond the senses. So therefore, it can't be known and truly comprehended via empiricism because empiricism restricts the area of knowledge to that which is perceived and understood uh, only by uh, on, only by the the, um, uh, by, the by the physical. So spirituality itself would be excluded from that. So when we look at this, the conclusion in all this is when spirituality can mean anything, it means nothing. When any word, any concept becomes so nebulous, so abstruse, so 
really meaningless. It, it, it loses all content. You can't have a discussion about it. But the Bible talks about spirituality. There are several different ways in which the Bible talks about spirituality. And it clearly defines spirituality from the very beginning in the Old Testament scriptures in the Torah of Genesis. There's an emphasis on spirituality and if we understand spirituality as the Bible defines it. And so I'm going to give you an opening sort of definition of spirituality. We'll go to this slide here to raise just some of the questions that we need to uh, uh, answer, uh, defining it, what is spirituality. And we're going to see that this relates to having an, a, a relationship with God. I think there are two aspects to that relationship with God, but in its most fundamental sense, spirituality is being in right relationship with God. That's going to express itself in a couple of different ways. And this then relates to the second question that I raise, is what does it mean to be spiritually alive? Now, you can catch a lot of uh, a reaction from people if you say that they're spiritually dead. Uh, if they are not Christians, then they don't like the idea of spirit being spiritually dead because they feel very much to be spiritually alive. And there are some Christians who have some different ideas on what it means to be uh, spiritually dead or spiritually alive. So this is a term that needs to be investigated. What does it mean to be spiritually alive? What it, does it mean to be to have a spiritual life. Now those are closely related ideas, but they are different. You can be spiritually alive but not have a spiritual life. And we need to understand the the distinctions that are drawn there. We need to understand how we acquire a spiritual life, how that spiritual life matures, how is it nourished? What are the goals, objectives, means, methods of spiritual growth? and spirituality. And so in order to do that, we have to start investigating some of these terms. Now I'll get back, I'll, I'll use uh, two terms to investigate this. And in terms of those who've been listening to the Roman series that may not be uh, tuned into things that have been going on here, uh, the, there's been about three or four weeks since the last Romans class because I was away in Israel and then last week we had a summary of that uh, trip and some of the spiritual lessons uh, from the uh, trip to Israel. So some of what I'm saying now builds on what was taught in the previous lesson and for those of you, those of us who don't remember that last lesson, the focus on that last lesson was on uh, death and life in the scriptures. And this, the fact that throughout the scriptures, especially starting back in the Torah, there is this contrast between death and life from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, 17, and God's warning to Adam and Eve that if they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. They would certainly die. And there's a Hebrew idiom used there that is emphasizing the certainty of that death and it's not really talking about uh, it's not really talking about um, different kinds of death there it's just talking about one kind of, of death in that particular passage but as you read through Genesis which is the, basically the historical prologue uh, to the Torah telling all of God's acts and how he called out uh, Abraham and promised him the land and a, an innumerable uh, number of descendants that uh, God would um, bless the human race through and that, that that sets up the major redemptive analogy in the Old Testament, which is the uh, deliverance of those descendants, the Israelites, from uh, bondage in, in Egypt. And then they are given the Mosaic Law. And as they're given the Mosaic Law by God, uh, what is emphasized in there is that there is a path to life, which is obedience to the law, and there's a path to death, which is disobedience to the law. And both Moses and his successor Joshua emphasized to the people that you have a choice. 
Are you going to choose life or are you going to choose death? And it is that choice that we find emphasized all the way through Scripture so that when we come to the New Testament, this is a major emphasis in Jesus' message that he has come to bring life. And he says that he came not like a thief to destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. So there's a uh, dual sense in the meaning of eternal life. One is a quantitative sense in terms of this new life that is life everlasting, life without end with God. And then there is a quantitative sense to that, excuse me, a qualitative sense to that, that this is talking about the richness, the fullness of the life that God has given us, experiencing all of the blessing, all of the benefits that God has already given us so that we have the richness, the fullness, the joy, the happiness, the peace, uh, everything that God has given us in terms of the quality of life. So you have quantity and quality. Both are present in that idea of eternal life. So life is contrasted to death, and death is brought in, and that's the first term I, we, we're emphasizing and need to remind us ourselves of when we talk about this concept of spirituality. Spirituality is the development of that spiritual life. It is in contrast to spiritual death. The penalty that God assigned to disobedience to him is stated initially in the second chapter of Genesis, the second chapter of the Torah, as God warned Adam not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, this concept of death, it's interesting that it first really starts to get developed in the epistle of Romans, in the section we're in, from Romans 5.12 to 5.22, you have an important emphasis on death, the death that comes from Adam's disobedience, and that from that disobedience, death spreads to all mankind. And then that becomes contrasted by the end of Romans 5.21 and 22 with the phrase, righteousness of life. Now, I'm going to put those verses up on the screen for us again before we get into uh, Romans 6, which we probably won't get to uh, tonight because we need to set the stage for it. But this, this concept of bringing in death and then transitioning by the end of Romans 5 to this concept of righteousness of, of life uh, shows that what what Paul is doing in his thinking is he's moving from uh, the topic of how to be justified before God, which is related to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. When we're justified, then we also are regenerated. At regeneration, we're given this new life, and now uh, with a new life, we are to live as righteous people. Now, the Old Testament uh, parallel to that is that when the uh, Israelites came out of Egypt, God redeemed them. And that's the major picture that God gives us historically is what happened uh, at the Exodus event with the death of the firstborn, the final uh, plague that occurred, the final judgment on the, the Egyptians. God redeems the Israelites. and They come out of Egypt. They cross the Dead Sea. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 uh, compares that to baptism that are identified with Moses as they cross the Dead Sea, Moses and his beliefs, and then they have a new life. They have been delivered from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, and now they have new life and new freedom. And the question is, how do these uh, Israelites who are newly made alive and newly free, supposed to live. And so then God gives them the law at Mount Sinai, telling them how a now regenerate people, a redeemed people, are supposed to live. The Mosaic law wasn't given to show them how to be redeemed. They're already redeemed. The Mosaic law was given to show how a redeemed people were to live in the same way the New Testament is given to believers 
to show teach justified believers how they are to live now that they uh, they are righteous. So we go back to the basic problem, which is this problem of death and understanding uh, just exactly the, what this means. Uh, death, uh, when it comes to talking about death, there are several different kinds of death in the Scripture that we have seen. And the first kind is this one that's mentioned here. It's not physical death, although we need to understand this because there are many Christians and non-Christians that you will talk to who believe that this is the major idea in Genesis 2.17, that uh, what God is saying is that in the day that you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, most people understand that the meaning of that phrase is that that when they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the immediate consequence would be this death. But then they'll come in and they'll say, well, God, for whatever reason, decided to postpone that death. In Adam's case, if you take the numbers literally, for uh, he didn't die until he was uh, 930 years old. Uh, he probably, he could have lived uh, maybe a hundred years, no more, in the garden because we're told that he's about a um, uh, hundred years, 120 years, something like that when, when Cain is born or, or when Cain, when, when, excuse me, when Seth is born, he's 120. Well, and by the time Seth is born, Cain has already grown to adulthood and he and Abel have uh, had their conflict, and Cain has killed Abel. So if Seth is born when Adam's 120, then it's possible that uh, Cain might not have been born until Adam was 90, 95, something of that nature. So you you do get an implied time frame in there. But uh, at any rate, you've got Adam going, living maybe 800, 850 years between uh, after the time that he eats from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't die immediately. So that's our first indication that uh, this death mentioned in Genesis 2.17 must not indicate a physical, uh, a physical death. Now, there are some other ways in which we can uh, support this idea. Uh, the first, as I'm pointing out, is from the, just the grammar of this text, indicates that there's going to be an immediate consequence, an immediate penalty for their disobedience and their eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Another way that you can uh, support this idea is just by looking at the uh, text of Genesis chapter 3, that after uh, Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God comes to walk with them in the garden as he is, uh, as is his habit on a daily basis. And we're told that in verse 8 that when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, they hid themselves. So this is different. Something radically changed. And instead of of anticipating and looking forward to and enjoying that time with God. Now they're running from God. So this indicates something about this new, a new status has come into being, and this status has to do with this kind of death. So then after that, after God begins to communicate with them, he begins to outline various consequences to what occurred. And these consequences begin in verse 14 where he first addresses the serpent and tells the serpent that because he has been involved in this, that he is now going to crawl on his belly and eat dust all the days of his life. But there's also a statement in that verse, verse 14, that he, that the serpent will be cursed more than all the cattle, which implies that there's a curse that goes to the other beasts of the field, not just the serpent. So there's one consequence that's related to the animal world. And then in verse 15, God says that he's going to put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between her seed and the serpent seed. And there's the first indication of a, of a gospel of good news that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, though the serpent would bruise the heel of the, uh, of the uh, seed of the woman. 
Then he addresses the woman and talks about how she would have increased sorrow and pain in the process of childbirth and that she would also have authority conflicts with her husband because of the reality of sin. So these are other consequences. This isn't spiritual death. These are consequences of spiritual death. And then Adam is addressed at the end because he is the designated head of the race and because he listened to the voice of his wife instead of the voice of God. It's not wrong to listen to your wife every now and then. They have really good ideas, and they're sensitive to some things that we're not, and so it's important to do that. But we listen to God, not to our wives, when there is a conflict between the two. And so there's a conflict uh, here. The man followed the woman instead of God, and there are consequences for his primary mission. Now the ground is going to be cursed. All the days of his life there will be thorns and thistles that will be uh, springing forth from the ground, and now his previous uh, responsibilities would be toilsome, and he will work by this and earn his bread by the sweat of his face. And then we have the first mention of physical death at the end of verse 19. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So the point is that this is a minor reference to death. It really doesn't stand out. It does to us because we've heard it in numerous funerals over the course of our lives. But it is the first mention of death, and it's part of a stack of consequences that God has has spelled out for for Adam and for the woman and for the serpent, so that uh, death is not physical death is not seen as an overarching over uh, arching defining concept for all of these different aspects. Its physical death is part of these ramifications of something that happened that transpired when Adam Adam disobeyed God. And that is what we define as spiritual death. Another verse that we, a couple of verses that we can go to to show that the Bible understands this category. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is you will run into people every now and then, not just unbelievers who wonder about this concept of spiritual, spiritual dead, because after all, they're very involved in their religious system, whatever that may be, or they feel a close connection to the universe or a close connection to uh, Mother Earth or whatever it might be, they don't feel like they are spiritually dead. They feel very spirit- very much spiritually alive. But in two passages in the New Testament, Paul reiterates this and gives us an understanding that there is something that transpires relative to a person's regeneration that that we talk about being born again or a new birth that occurs uh, for the beginning of the Christian life. And in both of these passages, Paul talks about that there is a previous time when we were dead. Uh, verse uh, Colossians 2.13 states, And you... And it should be understood as sort of a concessive past tense type of participle there. Although you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, what does that mean? Well, the reason he put uncircumcision of the flesh here is because in the previous two verses, he dealt with the issue of the uh, baptism by the Holy Spirit. The problem that was lurking in the uh, false teaching going on in Colossae had something to do with a an emphasis, uh, a misemphasis, a wrong emphasis on, on circumcision is somehow a sign of spirituality. And so he uses that here uh, because that's related to the problem at hand. But he's talking about being dead in your trespasses, and then he says, he has made alive together with him. That's our concept of regeneration. Now in Ephesians 2.1, which is a parallel passage to the Ephesians, he began this discourse on their salvation in chapter 2. He said, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Literally, in the Greek, it would be almost the same as Colossians 2.13. Though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and then, then if you look in your English Bible, 
that that introductory clause, you he made alive, is really in italics because for it to make sense in English, you have to bring your main verb up, which doesn't show up in the Greek until about verse uh, 4 or 5. And you have three three main verbs there. So to for it to make sense in English, they have to bring that main verb up to the front so that it begins to make have some some uh, modicum of sense in English. But the point is that when you are and I are made alive in Christ, it is because we are born in a state of death, but we're physically alive. That tells us that that word death doesn't have as its primary meaning physical death in this context. It has as its primary meaning some form of a real death, but not a physical death. And so we define this as spiritual death, which is being separated from God so that we are separated from the source of life. It's like when you unplug a fan from the wall and the blades continue to turn and it continues to generate air and move air, but it's disconnected from the power source, so all you're going to see is it run down until it finally stops. So people are like... Uh, sort of like the walking dead. We're dead, but we have a semblance of life, but it's not real life. We've been disconnected from the power source. Now, this is the idea that lies behind uh, the last part of Romans chapter 5. Now, when I covered this in the previous lesson, I know that there were several people, or at least a couple of comments came to me, and I figured whenever there are two comments that come to me of confusion, there's probably much more confusion. Sort of like if a congressman gets one phone call, he figures that represents about uh, 10,000 people because they get so few phone calls. So uh, this is what we find in Romans chapter, the last part of Romans 5, is Paul is moving in this direction of explaining what spiritual death is. Now, just as a side note, every now and then I hear somebody make a comment that when you're witnessing to people, you don't really need to remind them that they're sinners or tell them that they're sentenced, they're under a condemnation. And that's not necessary in terms of, of, of helping them necessarily understand the gospel, but it is in terms of understanding what, why they need to be saved. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's not doing this to berate people about the fact that they're sinners and they have failed and he's not trying to impose a guilt complex on people. But what he's doing is he's, he's establishing this so that by contrast, when he talks about the life that God has given us, then it stands out in contrast to the present reality of our condition of spiritual death and living in a uh, spiritually dead world in a world under under condemnation so in verse 12 as we saw that this he starts the topic therefore just as through one man that is adam sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death just spreads out like a disease to all mankind because all sinned. And then most translations put an M dash or a parenthesis or something in here to indicate that, that Paul sort of takes a, uh, uh, a sideline here and uh, to explain this. It's so important. And he doesn't pick it up until verse 18. Verse 18, he goes back to the main topic at hand. So there's this parenthetical between 5.13 to 5.17 because he wants people to understand before he starts talking about the new life that we have to make sure they understand why it's necessary and from whence it comes. And what that foundation is, he doesn't want there to be any confusion over the fact that we are all born spiritually dead and we experience the effects of spiritual death and the consequences of spiritual death from the very beginning of our life. We live in the midst of spiritually dead people in cultures produced by spiritually dead people who are just trying to somehow anesthetize themselves to the reality that we're living in a dead culture, in a dead world with dead people. And so uh, he wants us to make sure that we understand this. And he concludes that uh, 
parenthesis in 517 by stating, uh, for if by one, by the one man's offense, death reigned. And as I pointed out last time, the phrase death all through here is, uh, always has an article with it. And it's talking about the uniqueness, the distinctiveness, the, the, uh, quality of this. So it's talking about that original death, that, uh, s- uh, spiritual death that came from Adam. If by the one man's offense, the death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. See, that's what he wants to emphasize. He's not, you know, browbeating us with the fact that we're under condemnation or punishment, but by by understanding the contrast between the status of death and it's total that, that that's just doesn't produce anything then we can see the then then all of the life that we have from God's grace is brought out in in all of its all of its glory so in Romans 5:18 Paul makes this transition from talking about judgment and condemnation to now showing that what when this is solved we can have life and righteousness. So Paul writes, therefore, as to uh, one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Now, the the way that um, we should understand condemnation here is the word punishment. It results in punishment. So when we read that word condemnation, we're talking about spiritual death. We're often thinking about uh, eternal punishment, but that's not Paul's emphasis here. His emphasis here is that we're living in a state of punishment in a world that is under punishment right now, and it's not what it's supposed to be. Life isn't what it's supposed to be. We experience that on a day-to-day basis with our work, with family, with just the fact that the machines that we depend upon in life every day run down and have problems. Life isn't what it's supposed to be. That is because we're living in a world and a universe that is under condemnation. So with uh, verse uh, 18, Paul continues this extended uh, comparison he's had going between Adam and the consequences of his actions and Jesus and the consequences of his, uh, of his action. Uh, so we see, for as by one man's disobedience, many are made uh, sinners. And then we, let me skip forward here a couple of slides. We'll pick up um, in 5.18. So as also by one man's obedience, many will be made, uh, made righteous. So one man's decision leads to punishment. The other man's decision leads to the potential that many will be declared to be righteous or made righteous. And the verb here, will be made, is a verb that has not been used much by Paul, kathistemi, uh, indicating the idea of will be appointed or will be made, and it has also that same idea of being declared righteous. And so... Uh, there's this uh, contrast between the previous state of condemnation and the present state of being made righteous. Now, in verse 18, we read that as though through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in punishment. Uh, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift... So it's not something we earn or deserve. It's free. Came to all men, resulting in, and then we have this last phrase, justification of life. But the word there that's translated justification is dikaiosune, and it has that idea of righteousness. It is righteousness, and then there's the preposition eighth, meaning righteousness toward life. So the reason we're given righteousness is so that now we can experience life because life comes from living in the realm of righteousness and producing righteousness 
in terms of uh, experiential righteousness, it doesn't occur in the realm of unrighteousness. If we are a Christian and you're living in the realm of carnality, you're living in the realm of sin, you're living in the realm of disobedience to God, that's not going to produce life. That's going to produce death. It's going to produce what is called car- what we call carnal death or operational death. But if we're living and walking by the Spirit, then on the basis of our justification, then it, that righteousness that we have in Christ will result in life. And that life that we have is a life that is uh, consistent with uh, experiential righteousness. So in verse 19, Paul then goes on to say, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteousness. It's that foundation of righteousness then that is the uh, platform from which we can produce ex- uh, experiential righteousness and righteous living. We are not against living in a righteous manner. Then in verse 20, Paul goes on to say, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. So now he's going to talk about why the law came in. The law came in. It doesn't make sin sin. Sin was already sin for all of those generations prior to the giving of the Mosaic law. According to biblical chronology, the Torah is given to Moses about 1446 B.C., and God created Adam and Eve uh, somewhere around uh, 4,000 uh, 4, B.C., 4,100, 4,200, somewhere in there, depending on, on how a couple of different things are handled. So you have uh, 2,500 years where there's no law, there's no Mosaic law. So the Mosaic law doesn't define these things as sin, but in the law code given to Moses, many things are identified as sin that weren't spelled out that precisely prior to that. So with the giving of the Mosaic law, there's much more opportunity uh, for sin, you might say, or it's sin is exposed in a much greater and more detailed way than it was previously. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. The law entered that the offense might abound. By defining sin more tightly, it become, people become aware that, that, that just about anything that they do could be classified as a sin because sin is anything that violates the character uh, and the revelation of God. And so uh, by giving the law, it, we, 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 we have even less of an opportunity to rationalize away sin. And But what happens as a result of that? What happens is that grace just superabounds because even though it is sin is more evident, God's grace in dealing with that sin becomes even more evident. For example, if you go back and you read the through Leviticus, it becomes clear that just about anything you do or touch or anywhere you go can render you ceremonially unclean. The more you read, the more the question should come to you, how in the world could anybody remain ceremonially clean? It's almost impossible. If you just go through everyday life, you're going to uh, touch something or go somewhere or experience something that will render you ceremonially unclean. And the, that's a picture of the fact that, that sin just abounds throughout our lives and just abounds everywhere. But every time, no, the, the more aware we are of how extensive sin is, the more, even more aware we should be that God's grace is available to cover all of that and even more. So there, the awareness of sin becomes much more intense But at the same time, that should make our awareness of grace even more intense. And that's what Paul is saying here when he talks about the fact that that the law made sin abound, but yet grace abounded uh, even more. But this is not the end in itself. The end in itself is given in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death. Now, what does that mean? 
That means that during this time of history, when there wasn't a law, and then the time after the law, between the giving of the law and the coming of Jesus as the Messiah, sin reigned in death. People lived in a death-dominated world. Remember the question Moses asked of the Israelites, choose this statement he made, the challenge he made, choose this day life or death. Death dominated everything in life. As you went through life, everything is tainted by sin, everything is tainted by this punishment from God, so that during this time, sin reigns supreme in death. And then he says, even so, grace might reign. And here he uses this um, subjunctive mood verb, indicating its potential. It's dependent upon human volition. Even so, that grace might reign. It only reigns if we do what God says to do. Grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But the eternal life that's mentioned here is not quantitative eternal life. That is life without end, uh, moving from a state of spiritual death to spiritual life so that you will spend eternity in heaven. The eternal life mentioned here in context has gone beyond the life we receive at regeneration to living uh, in a time of the condemnation and spiritual uh condemnation and spiritual death on the earth to experiencing the richness and the fullness of the life that God has given us. Now, remember, just so that, because I can see the wheels turning and people thinking, well, how, how do you get that? Well, just remember there weren't any verse divisions or chapter divisions when Paul wrote this. And when we move from verse 21 we move right into verses 1 and 2 and uh, down through 4 in chapter 6. And chapter 6 is your, those four verses in chapter 6 are your transition, part of your transition, where Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin? continue to live in it. See, there's death and life again. And then he says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should, what? Walk in newness of life. See, that's where Paul's going. So that when he comes to the end of Romans 5 there, and he's talking about the fact that that grace abounded so that um, righteousness could, abound, could reign through eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, he's, he's left the concept of moving from, from positional death to positional life back in chapter 4, and now he's moving to experiencing the fullness of that life. He uses this same phrase of eternal life when we get to the end of chapter 6, uh, when he talks about uh, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the same concept. And Romans 6 is all about learning how to live as a believer, not in bondage to sin, but living as a slave to righteousness. If you live as a slave to sin, then that produces death. But if you live as a slave to righteousness, that produces life. That's the life that's talked about in Romans 6.23. That's not getting saved. That's how, uh, that's an unbel- uh, that's, excuse me, that's a believer who's continuing to live in carnality and not experiencing the fullness of life, not letting the righteousness uh, reign as eternal or full life in his spiritual life. And so that's, that's how Paul sets this up, talking about life and death. So we see the first two key terms here in talking about the spiritual life in Scripture is understanding the nuances and the distinctions between life and death. And then as we start next time, I'll talk about the, these words, holiness and sanctification, which are words that sound so strange to many 
on a contemporary generation because they sound so antiquated and they, uh, they are technical theological concepts, but they're at the very core of all uh, Old Testament and New Testament uh, depictions of our life in relationship to God. The word holiness from the Hebrew word kadosh, you have in, in Ju- Judaism, many prayers are kaddish. Uh, this, this is the same word. It emphasizes that which is set apart to God. That's the meaning of sanctification. And that's what spiritual life is. So we'll start that next time. Father, thank you for this time to think our way through these issues. Be reminded that you have given us new life in Christ. We are made alive in him. And we are to live on the basis of this life with this righteousness that we have been given. That by pursuing uh, life, then that righteousness becomes a platform for experiencing righteousness and seeing righteousness produced in our lives that we may experience the richness, the abundance, the fullness of life that you have given us. Once again, this is based on understanding all the dimensions of what took place in our salvation and at the cross. And by understanding that, it lays the at least the knowledge platform for being able to Uh, fully exploit all that we have been given in Christ. We pray that you would challenge us with these things to pursue excellence in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.